Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is an interview-stroke-conversation between me and Robert Talese, who is a returning guest to the podcast. He did a two-part episode with me about a year ago. Professor Talese is the W. Alton Jones Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and he's the author or editor of 11 books, including most recently, Sustaining Democracy, What We Owe to the Other Side. That's the main thing we discuss in this interview, but we also pursue some tangents talking about the nature of liberalism, the role of imagination in politics, and what the ultimate utility for us today is from texts from the history of political thought. So, all of that's coming up. As always, a really, really big thank you to everyone who sponsors the podcast on Patreon. Uh, I do not take, and I will never take, any money to do commercial advertisements or sponsorships on this podcast. It's also an independent project. I'm not affiliated with anybody. So, all of the costs associated with doing this are covered by my Patreon supporters, and I think that's a reasonable trade, and it's one I'm pretty comfortable with. No ads. The podcast never gets interrupted by that. But at the beginning of each episode, I just give a little prompt saying, sponsor me on Patreon if that's something you're able to do. And particularly big shout out and thank you to Thomas Donnelly, who just sponsored me for $10 an episode. That's terrific. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of my Patreon supporters and anyone who just helps grow the show by sharing or recommending to friends. You've made it possible and you continue to make it possible, and I'm really grateful for that. So with that quick plug aside, let's get straight to it. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Professor Robert Talese. Okay, I am joined today by Robert Talese. Professor, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. It's wonderful to be talking to you again. Thanks for having me back. Um, you know, randomly, um, I might mention, um, I think we have a mutual um, friend. Um, Magdi Samru mentioned that she knows you, uh, Twitter's Mangy J. Um, which yeah, was kind yeah, of yeah. like, I interviewed her for the podcast because she's been doing some really good articles for various places. Yes. Um, and that was kind of just like a random connect that she mentioned. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, I know that guy. I've interviewed him. <laughs> did, did she mention how, uh, you know, what, what the what the third person who is the connecting... Uh, her husband, right? I advised her, her part. Yeah, I advised her husband's dissertation. Who, he's a very good philosopher. That's that's terrific. Anyway, one of those um, <laughs> small world <laughs> random things. And you have a new book out, and this is the most important compliment I can give it. Has one of the best covers I've seen on an academic book in a long time. Because okay, I know there's a saying about books and covers, but people absolutely do judge them on them. 
Um, and right. academic books can be like less good in that respect, I find. But yours, <laughs> yours is up there. Like, I appreciate that. You know, I um, I found the cover painting myself hmm. with a. Uh, just, you know, I thought that one afternoon I would just do some Google searches for images, for phrases that I thought were operative, given what the book was about. And um, I came across a painting that is titled Democracy is Dead. Mm. <laughs> and really liked the painting, sort of studied it carefully, thought a little bit about it. And I wrote to the artist out of the blue, uh, whose name is Ian Thulier. And just said, you know, I'm writing, finishing this book, and I came across this image. I was really struck by it. And, you know, uh, you know, would, would you be interested in having a, just a conversation about maybe allowing me to use it um, for the cover? And Ian wrote back, which was a surprise. I, I almost thought, like, I'm never going to hear from this guy. Um, and he said, well, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you think the painting is about and why you, you know, what your book is about and why you think the painting is is uh, is appropriate. And, uh, I wrote back a little paragraph saying that, you know, the book is about, um, how badly things can go for democracy when politics takes over our minds, you know, when we, when it gets in our head in a certain way, you know, what are sort of political challenges and political obstacles and political disagreements even start feeling to us like they're the end of democracy. And, uh, he wrote back and said, you know, I couldn't have put what my, you know, that, that's a pretty good depiction of what that painting, I think the painting's about. So yeah, go for it. Sounds great. And he just said, I just want to make sure you get, send me a copy and a copy to my mom. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a, that was a, I was, I was very grateful that he um, uh, allowed us to use the, the, the painting on the cover. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with the cover too. So <laughs> that was. Um... I'm glad to hear you say that you like it. Yeah, that was one of the things with my book is I, I had a very specific vision of what I wanted the cover to look like, and that was the only bit of my negotiations with the publisher where I was quite insistent. You know, when they were doing the copy edits and like, would this sentence read better like this? I'm like, yeah, sure. That you, yeah, right. done. Um, but for the cover, I was like, no, I do not like that font. You know, <laughs> so I think they got a bit sick of that after a while, but that's that's where I put my foot down. <laughs> well, it's important. You know, you want to be able to you the thing's going to have your name on it. You want to be able to look at it and say, yeah, that, that was that was a job well done by me. You know, and if you look at it every time and you're like, I hate the font. It just detracts from the your own sense of accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> So what was the process from your last book to this one? Because I feel like there's definitely strong thematic links between them. Did did this book in some way come out of your thought process or like the reception you got from your last one? What was sort of your journey from A to B there? Good. Um, I'm glad you asked. Uh, so yeah, this the, the, the new book, which is titled Sustaining Democracy, um, is I, I see it as a kind of sequel to the 2019 book, which we, we talked about on a previous uh, episode or two of the podcast, which is called Overdoing Democracy. And um, sustaining democracy emerged out of a question that I would routinely get when I gave talks to academic and public audiences about the Overdoing Democracy book. 
And, um, you know, I'd get lots of interesting questions from various kinds of audiences about the Overdoing Democracy uh, uh, book. But one that really stuck out for me was um, there would usually be sort of towards the end of the Q&A, somebody who would ask, um, OK, maybe you've convinced me that sometimes democratic citizens need to build activities that they can engage in together that um, are non-political in the sense that they're not expressive of their political identities. Maybe that's a, a crucial good uh, for, for, for upholding the, the, the capacities that we need as democratic citizens. That's the thesis of the Overdoing Democracy book. The question would begin, I'll grant you that thesis. We need non-political stuff in our lives. Mm -hmm. And then the question would be, but when it is time to do politics, how are we supposed to go on? Given that we're so inclined to see the other side as fundamentally divested from the democratic project, as fundamentally corrupt and depraved and um, ill-willed, uh, uh, malevolent, how am I supposed to do politics with them? You know, give me a nice thought about how we might go, you know, about restoring certain kinds of democratic capacities, but we still have to do politics. And it looks like we're not going to be able to do that. Hmm. And so sustaining democracy um, began with the thought that that was a serious challenge, that it's a challenge that... Um, I think uh, democratic theorists and democratic commentators often don't take seriously enough. Mm. Um, and as I started working my way through it, it, it struck me that um, what was driving the challenge, you know, how are we supposed to go on given that, given where we're at, which is already, I'm suspicious of the other side. How am I supposed to go on? Um, I realized that um, the, the struggle, right? Uh, the, 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 the turmoil that uh, people who were putting this question to me seemed to be feeling um, was the product not of anybody falling down on the job of democracy or failing to take seriously the office of the democratic citizen. It rather, the, you know, the, the struggle, the turmoil, the travail emerged out of sincere efforts to take democracy and democratic citizenship seriously. It's because I'm so invested in the democratic project, right, that I'm engaged and informed and activated by political matters, that that's part of the story of how I come to assess the political opponents, the politically other side to my view and my allies' view as divested or insufficiently committed to the democratic project. And it got me thinking that, you know, um, we often, you know, in political philosophy and political philosophy, the part of political philosophy that's democratic theory, tends to proceed as if, if we got the institutions right, if we got the dispositions of the people right, if people knew enough of the kinds of things they have to know, if the politicians were not incentivized to be corrupt in certain ways, that if we fix these obvious potholes on the road for a better democracy, it's smooth sailing. And it started to occur to me, it's like, I don't think that's true. I think that baked into the office of the democratic citizen is a series of moral challenges.
that emerge precisely because you're trying to do what you're required. You're trying to do, you're trying to meet your responsibilities. So even if we're doing everything that we should as democratic citizens, there are still conflicts and anxieties and, um, uh, and travails of a moral kind because the norms that should govern us as democratic citizens don't always fit together in a happy family. <laughs> Um, so the new book, uh, just to put it sort of in a sloganizing way, um, uh, Overdoing Democracy, the 2019 book, argued that certain crucial capacities for democratic citizenship can be cultivated only in contexts where we are engaged in cooperative endeavors with others that are not political. Hmm. The Sustaining Democracy book argues that um, uh, sometimes in order to preserve in ourselves uh, our democratic capacities as citizens, sometimes we have to do politics in a way that distances ourselves from our allies. <laughs> How's that? That's good. Um, I have a lot of questions. Okay, should we start with um, the start of the book, The Democrats' sure. Dilemma? Yeah. As like, okay, just tell, tell me what that is before I say anything else. Well, so... Um, what well, part of what I argue in the book is that we need to think of democracy not merely as a set of institutions or even as practices within institutions, but uh, as a moral ideal, as an aspiration. Uh, so I argue that democracy is the aspiration for a society of self-governing equals or for, uh, um, uh, 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 for uh, well, just leave it at that, a society of self-governing equals. Um, and I argue that um, the political equality that lies at the heart of that ideal has two moral upshots that take the form of civic responsibilities. Citizens uh, are called upon to take responsibility for the political world around them, or at least the part of the political world that they exercise some, you know, maybe middling uh, bit of control with a vote or uh, with their um, advocacy. They have to take responsibility for politics. They have to uh, act in the role of citizen in a way that they, um, uh, in a way that aims to further justice as they have best understood it. Hmm. They say, well, that's one responsibility, taking responsibility for the political order, right? So then there's another, though, that falls out of political equality which is that we're one another's equals. We're not merely equals in the eyes of the government and the governing institutions and the office holders that occupy roles in those institutions. We're equal to one another. We're one another's equals. Mm. And I argue that what that means is that in thinking through the question of how to deploy our share of political power, be it voting or other kind modes of advocacy, we need to enter into modes of consultation with fellow citizens so that we can see their perspectives, understand their maybe conflicting or differing priorities, um, uh, learn about their values and their differing ideas about what government should be doing or what the real problems are or, uh, uh, or how to fix things. Um, and so 
you know, the deliberative Democrats really have a very robust, muscular conception of this consulting sort of activity. Hmm. I'm sympathetic with all that. Although the argument, uh, the Democrats' dilemma argument um, doesn't rely on that. It just says you need to, you're, you are responsible to your fellow citizens in addition to having to take responsibility for the political world around you. Um, and so some activity that is involved in thinking through political questions in ways that accounts for the perspectives and priorities and values and ideas of others is just part of the uh, the office of democratic citizenship. Now, the dilemma emerges because when the chips are down, when the question is urgent, when politics really matters to us, hmm. we are inclined to see the people on the other side of the issue as on the wrong side of the issue. We're inclined to see them as not merely wrong about what the government should be doing or what the policy should be or how we should, you know, who should be elected. They're not really wrong. They're not merely wrong about those questions. They're in the wrong. We see their exercises of advocacy as wrongful, as attempts to further injustice. Because after all, political disagreements, not all of them maybe, but the ones that really strike us as urgent are disagreements about justice. And so it strikes us that the people who are our political opponents um, uh, are people who, if they get their way, justice will have been violated or will fall further from justice. So you can get the dilemma by just saying, okay, I've got a responsibility to exercise my political power in ways that further justice as best I understand it. And I've got a responsibility to consult with, to give a hearing to, to try to figure out and understand my fellow citizens. Well, when the chips are down, a certain perhaps large number of my fellow citizens have to look to me like agents of injustice. Mm -hmm. And so it feels like a kind of betrayal or capitulation to them to give them a hearing. It feel, and it might look to our allies like it's a sign of our own half-heartedness right, in our coalition to say, well, wait a minute, what do the critics have to say? What are the opponents, what is the other side thinking? Looks like it's a kind of inauthenticity on our part. So it looks as if showing a due regard to our political opponents in these charged cases weakens our alliances, takes time and attention away from uh, the activities we might otherwise engage with uh, or engage in with our allies to just try to get the right result. So that's the dilemma. These two modes of democratic responsibility that fall to the citizen pull apart in the cases where things really seem to matter. And so the book is an attempt to try to give adequate voice to the dilemma, to just mm. say, look, this is not you know, somebody saying, I just want the result that I want, and I'm gonna try to just be strategic to get the result I want. We we'll say, no, the Democrats' dilemma is a conflict of moral directives. Hmm. And when somebody says, as I think it's part of the phenomenology of democratic citizenship, to sometimes say to oneself, why bother with anybody who's not an ally? Why not just work with my allies to get the right result? Why not just see the other side as not my fellow citizens, but as obstacles 
to getting a good democratic, a good, a just democratic result. Why not just set them aside, you know, disengage, suspend democratic relations with the other side for the sake of better, more efficiently, and perhaps more effectively getting a just result? I take that as a moral argument, not merely just a strategic one. Um, and I think it's a natural set of considerations to raise as a democratic citizen. The Sustaining Democracy book tries to give a moral response uh, to a citizen who, in confronting the Democrats' dilemma, says, I think, for solid but non-decisive moral reasons, ignore the other side, deracinate them, dismiss them, and work to overcome them because justice is more important. And it tries to give a moral argument that says, not so, I see that you have moral reasons to suspend democracy with your foes. And I want to appreciate the force of those reasons. I just want to give you a reason, I want, I want to show you that, the, that those reasons are not as weighty, not as decisive as they may appear. And here's a set of other moral reasons for for sustaining rather than suspending democracy with your foes. You would Did that get the dilemma? Yeah. Would you agree, right, that that seeing that that in the context of a democratic society, people, some group of people viewing other group of another group of people as committed to a instantiating injustice in the world or something like that is kind of an inevitability like that's that's just going to be that now you can devise better and worse cultures and institutions but that i i really i i think there's a tendency to sort of the way i think about it is i think a lot of people talk about politics as if the point of politics is to end politics the point right. of contestation is to end contestation. Um, and that's, it seems to me, really just pretty self-evident that people are going to have different ideas about what is just and what is unjust. And just it just follows very, very simply from that, that we're going yep. to regard each other as attempting to do wrong, right. sometimes profoundly morally wrong, things in the yep. world. That's just... That's right. That's always been with us. It's always going to be with us. And it's an upshot of our equality. Right? One yeah. of the upshots of political equality is that for better or worse, within a pretty broad spectrum, right, mm. we are entitled to make up our own minds about things mm. according to our own best lights. And so it strikes me, you know, there's a this is a point that, you know, um, you know, you could make it in the Rawlsian way, right? Mm. Just yeah, there's disagreement is just a, a is a natural upshot of, you know, our powers of reason operating under conditions of you know or, or you know conditions such as they are of you know intellectual freedom, <laughs> just that's just what happens, um. So I think that you're right. Uh, I'm um. Uh, I, I sometimes say this to people who know my who, who know my work, and they're surprised to hear me say it. I've always considered myself a kind of agonist about democracy, right? Mm -hmm. Where I think that your intuition, both that a lot of democratic theorizing, although it's not always explicit, sees political disagreement and even political contestation as the necessary step that you know once we fix things 
you know, that stuff is going to wither away and we're going to have this more Rousseauvian, you mm. know, uh, community. Um, I think you're right that a lot of democratic theorists proceed in that way, sometimes not fully aware that that's what's underlying some of their views. And I also agree with you that um, it's naive, it's Pollyannish. I think that democracies run on disagreement and disagreement is the natural upshot of the project, not a necessary hurdle that ultimately gets supplanted along the way to more perfect democracy. Democracy is a is government by way of contestation among equals. I was having a conversation a while ago with um, a journalist who sort of reads a lot of political theory, and they'd come they 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 were reading Rousseau for the first time, and they sort of asked me, "But this this is just absolutely bonkers, right? This guy's absolutely insane." And I sort of did the thing of, "Well, listen, I'm not a Rousseau scholar, and I'm not going to give you a close textual read, and I can recommend people who really be able to explain the argument in detail to you." And he sort of went. Yeah, but it's bonkers, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's bonkers. Like, the guy was a beautiful writer, and he's very quotable, but yeah, there was something, like, not normal in his head. Um, anyway, anyway, um, this is an aside, and then we'll circle back to the argument of the book. Um, but one of, the, I think, the qualities that liberalism has that, that can get neglected is it can get from A to B in a way that is not perfect and is certainly, you know, we have our paradoxes of tolerance and liberalism wrestles and grapples with these things as well. Um, but I think the question often is from, let's just say, an authoritarian conservative, is what's the limiting principle in your ideology? You know, we, I'm just saying an unabashed authoritarian, might say, we're quite straightforward about the fact we have an ideal of justice, we want to seize political power, and use it to um, potentially silence ideals of non-justice. But liberalism is kidding itself if it thinks it's a purely relativistic creed or something like that. It has values. What, what, what's stopping you from just saying, we can enforce these values at the barrel of a gun for people's own good? And it's not absolute. Like I say, liberalism will have views of the world that it considers beyond the line. But it actually, I mean, as you know from our last conversation, I'm tempted to do these things in a John Stuart Mill way, you did them in a John Rawls way, but they do the same thing of essentially saying, well, listen, there is a limiting principle, and the limiting principle is we value things, like people being able to think for themselves and make their own choices. We value living in a pluralistic society. We think either for consequentialist or deontological or for whatever reasons, we think that's a good. And that actually does limit the degree of oppression. Or, that's not to say liberals can't oppress political opponents. We can and do, and maybe sometimes we should. But it is a limiting principle that is really hardwired into the core of liberalism that isn't there in, well, obviously not there in, say, just a authoritarian creed, but I think is less obviously there in other sort of non-liberal ideologies, and for which liberalism perhaps sometimes doesn't get enough credit. Like, I yes, agree. there's complications and messiness in application, but liberals, as a matter of historical fact, have created the most diverse and tolerant societies in human history, and there's a reason for that, is that we have that limiting principle where other ideologies don't. 
So I, so we agree, I think on the broad, you know, I, I, everything that you just laid out seems to me to be right, hmm. even to the point of saying that I don't think liberalism gets the kind of credit it deserves for being the nuanced kind of view that it is. Um, you know, I, 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 I wrote my dissertation on this, by the way, on liberalism, by the way. <laughs> so I'm stretching back, you know, yeah. uh, to some previous, but you know, um, uh, so I agree that the idea that liberalism is the attempt to do politics in the absence of hmm. any assertion of values, hmm. um, is a fiction. And I, I don't yeah. think that there's any a uh, liberal political thinker who's worth attending to as a liberal mm. who actually asserts that, right? Um, uh, so, you know, liberalism, as I understand it, has always been about a aspiration for a society that understands the operative political values around which the system is going to be built. Mm as values of a particular, maybe even second order kind, hmm. like values that say, being the author of your own life within certain constraints, thinking your way through life's big questions within certain constraints, understanding that others are going to, in their operations to think through and be their own, the authors of their own life within those constraints are going to wind up living lives that are going to look disorderly to you or going to look disordered to you. But nonetheless, if they're within certain broad constraints, they're not only permissible, they're tolerable. And you might even say within, you know, uh, in a certain sense, you might say, yeah, they are that they are living those lives that look strange to you should be taken as a kind of indirect evidence that you're living in a free society. Mm. Right. You should appreciate that in a certain sense. So the idea that liberalism is this attempt to do politics without asserting values strikes me as a as a red herring and a straw man. Mm. Um, similarly, I think that um, the discourse uh in liberal in liberal theory about neutrality, mm. um, which is connected to this, right? That somehow liberals uphold a, an ideal of neutrality, and that's supposed to be the the smoking gun that says, "See, liberals think you could do politics without asserting values, um, and if they just assert the value of neutrality, that looks like you know a dead end and a contradiction and all the rest." Um, you know, it always struck me that, um, you know, when liberals who do use the language of neutrality and are careful, they say, no, neutrality is neutrality among permissible. That is, we are neutral among the conceptions of the good that are consistent with the guardrails, yeah. right? That recognize the same guardrails of a liberal society. So we are neutral with respect to all of those. Now I'm speaking in a little bit of a Rawlsian idiom, neutral with respect to the comprehensive doctrines that are consistent with the idea mm. of a liberal society. More Rawlsy. Raw, that's, that's not a huge gotcha moment for Rawlsianism. Yeah. I mean, I think Rawlsians can sometimes put that language too strongly. Um, sure. And there's a sort of caricature of Rawls that reads him, I don't think it's the historic Rawls thought, to be fair to Rawls, as saying, no, it's just neutrality. It's perfectly yeah. neutral with respect to, to yeah. all things. But 
I think like an honest Rawlsian, I think most would, would would say, no, look, liberalism isn't neutral with respect. Liberalism's not neutral with respect to human rights. We carve right. out spaces of neutrality bounded by yep. underarch. Yeah, yeah, anyway. Yeah, we agree. So, yeah, we, I, I, I completely agree about all of that. And, you know, it's always neutral. It's neutrality bounded. It's the kind of values that are being asserted and embedded within the political system are constrained by other kinds of moral commitments, like the commitment to the moral personality of, of all of the citizens, right? Mm. They're moral persons. They're not mere subjects. They're not merely political things. They're, they've, they've got moral standing. Um, and that places constraints on how the state can see them and how this and how political institutions can regard and treat them. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, you and I are going to agree. I just think liberalism is um, a powerful political doctrine mm -hmm. and any of the critiques that proceed as if it's, um, you know, uh, it's some fish in a barrel that is easy to shoot mm -hmm. um, has 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 done something uh, disingenuous or has just misunderstood the doctrine. Yeah. On a separate note, um, from um, I've been reading your book, I haven't quite finished it yet, but in some ways, do you just sort of take it as almost, I mean, I do certainly, take it as almost just like axiomatic that democracies can fail and all other things being equal, that's an undesirable outcome. So undesirable that there's a reasonably strong moral obligation to do what we can such that they don't fail. I mean, I was sort of trying to put together an argument for something else, and I just sort of realised I'm taking this as a premise. I need to just state it as a premise and just say, look, there's arguments that have been made to this effect. I'm not making them here. I'm just taking this one as like an input almost. Uh, I would agree with that. And I would also say that um, there is a tendency, I don't know how to explain it, hmm. to think of democracy as a thing that once founded mm. kind of runs itself or perpetuates itself. Mm. I mean, the title of the book, you know, sustaining democracy, mm. you know, gives a little bit of an indication that we're on the same page here as well. Like no democracy demands a kind of maintenance that calls for us as its citizens to tr perpetually try to cultivate and shore up within ourselves certain kinds of capacities that are not, um, uh, some of which I should say, um, are not natural to us, are not easy for us. It's not easy to see the person who you regard as on the side of injustice mm. as nonetheless entitled to an equal say. That's a really hard stance. It's a morally burdened stance. Yeah. You're my political foe. And I think that if you get your way, injustice will be done. But nonetheless, you're entitled to an equal share of political power. It's not an easy moral thought to, you know, it's hard to fully embrace that thought. I at least find it hard to mm. enthusiastically embrace that and say, this is just the this is the core of a free society, right? But that's kind of what democracy calls us to do. Now, one thing you see yourself as, like, up against, as it were, in the book, is um, there's quite a lot of, I mean, there's quite a lot of, like, empirical research on this, on the tendency under certain circumstances for people to just be naturally uncharitable, as it were, and to assume bad motives and to assume 
that people, you know, are, are really plotting the overthrow of democracy or, or something like that. Um, before we even get to sort of what you do with that, do you just want to summarise that evidence and like, because it is reasonably robust, I think, yeah, yeah, at this yeah, yeah. point, right? So, you know, this is the 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 um, stuff about what, what the phenomenon I call belief polarization. Mm. You know, political polarization is the pulling apart of mm. two camps or parties or factions so that the middle ground drops out between them. There are problems that that raises for democracy. That's not really what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about this cognitive phenomenon. Um, so, you know, like-minded groups, as they interact um, more regularly uh, uh, amongst, you know, as a group, uh, the members of the group transform into more extreme versions of themselves. They come to hold more extreme versions of their prior beliefs. They come to hold those more extreme versions with higher degrees of confidence. They become more fervent. They become more tolerant of risky behavior of the sort that's recommended by the more tolerant behavior, uh, by, by the more tolerant beliefs. And so, you know, belief polarization um, sort of uh, erodes or challenges or in some cases chips away at our capacity to see people who are not like-minded with us as deserving of an equal say, because as we shift into our more extreme selves, people who are unlike us look to us more distorted, inscrutable. It's harder to see their view as well thought out. It's harder to, empirically, we're more likely to interrupt them when they speak. We're less likely to be able, after we've heard them say something, to give an accurate report of what they just said, um, they look to us like it looks to us like more and more of their behavior is misguided because it's motivated by their political ideas. So we come to see them as, um, you know, more and more of their behavior as explicable by way of their distorted political ideas. And moreover, as we shift into our more extreme selves, we start seeing all opponents as a monolith. We start seeing them as always saying the same thing, and we start attributing to them only the most extreme opposing views that we can think of, which, lo and behold, typically are the least plausible versions of the views that oppose our own. Um, now, all of this is well known, and it's and it's it's well documented, as you say, and it doesn't only apply to political groups or groups that are like-minded with political or evaluative or normative judgments. You know, the the the, the phenomenon is robust across all kinds of uh, uh, factors that you would think it otherwise might uh, vary. But the feature of the belief polarization phenomenon that sort of takes center stage in the Sustaining Democracy book, which I think has gotten, to my surprise less attention than it seems to me to deserve, because a lot of political theorists talk about the shift towards extremity and the, the higher tolerance for risky behavior and the way that belief polarization, you know, troubles and fouls relations with people who aren't seen as members of the in-group. Um, there's a lot that's written about that. Um, the thing that's less commonly written about but struck me as I was writing the book um, as more important, maybe, or maybe just as important for political theory or democratic theory, is that as groups shift into their more extreme attitudes and dispositions, hmm. they become more alike hmm. internally. That is, the group of environmentalists, as they interact, become more fervent in their environmentalism. They come to hold more radically environmentalist views with greater degrees of confidence. They also start behaving alike 
across a broadening range of activities. They start looking alike, their, their speech patterns start to homogenize. Um, you know, in the States today, um, you know, it's a pretty clear indication of whether a speaker is, is conservative or liberal. If you pay attention to how they pronounce the name of the country that is spelled I-R-A-N. I can, I, this might sound like a brag, but it is also true. I can almost always guess someone's politics by the language they use. Even this if we is, never talk about politics, I can this almost is exactly always good. do it. Good. So, and even by the language that they use, not only in terms of the content, but just the speech patterns, the way they pronounce things, how certain ideas get hooked up. Now, these are um, so as groups shift into their more as people shift into their more extreme selves, along with their coalitions, they start behaving alike across a broadening range of behaviors. But that's not all. As they start becoming more alike, they also become more invested in being alike. Mm. They become more clicky. They become more conformist. That is, as groups become more extreme, they also become more and more heavily invested in policing the membership of the group. Not, not only are they interested in hating the other side and dismissing them and, and caricaturing them and demonizing them, they do. And not only do they become more interested in policing the boundary between who's in and who's out of the group, they do. Once that boundary has been drawn and the people who are on the out are clearly marked as on the out, hmm. the in-group becomes more invested in policing the membership so that it maintains a standard of alikeness. Hmm. That is, it starts to develop uh, more exacting tests for authentic membership. Um, there are the equivalent, modern day equivalents of secret handshakes and special phrases and code words. By the way, we see this. Look what happened to Liz Cheney, <laughs> right? Like she's got to be expelled and punished because she's a poser. We've got the idiom of rhino and dino, right? Republican in name only and Democrat in name only to sort of, to sort of mark this. So as groups become more belief polarized, they become more conformist, more policing among, uh, more interested in policing the allyship, they also, for those reasons, become less internally democratic. Because mm. if the, the group is now really invested in in-group conformity, mm. it becomes more reliant on hierarchy, more mm. reliant on centralized figures to set the tone, to establish the expectations, to be the, the exam exemplar of uh, legitimate or authentic membership in the group. But as all of the conformity pressure escalates, more and more group members fail to live up to the expectations, which means that belief polarized groups start to shrink because they factionalize. Um, so you can already start seeing the flavor of the argument about why you might need to keep your political opponents around and keep open channels for, you know, as, as, as productive interchange as you can have with them. Because if you don't, if you expel or discontinue democratic relations with your opponents, the cognitive forces that, live, that lead you to hate the other side don't dissipate. They just turn you against your friends. Now, that sounds like a merely instrumental or prudential argument. Right? We need our opponents because they serve a purpose for us. Mm. And, but it's not merely instrumental because it seems to me that 
if you've got an obligation to to pursue justice, to take responsibility for the world around you and just try to make it more just, seems to me to follow that you also have an obligation to maintain the conditions where your efforts might succeed. And it seems to me that if you wanna be an effective democratic advocate for justice, you've got to preserve the conditions under which you can preserve and expand your political coalitions. Turns out that you need good critics and good pushback in order to be a good ally, a good advocate. That's ultimately the argument for sustaining democracy. It's an argument that says you've got to manage belief polarization, not by reconciling with the other side, because I think you need them to be your enemies. You need critics, right? So it's not about the Joe Biden thing, although that the, the you know, unity and we can't be enemies, that might all be good stuff. It's not insisting on reconciliation. Rather, the argument is that you need the other side. You need the friction from the other side so that you can maintain properly democratic relations with your allies. You need critics in order to mitigate or to counteract some of the pressures for in-group conformity that belief polarization gives rise to. How does that sound to you? I mean, I said this before we came on, and I realize it's like such an asshole thing to say, but I agreed <laughs> with this book more than I thought I was going to. Because, well, I'll tell you why, though. Because what we owe the other side kind of sets off an alarm bell in my head. Because in some ways, one phenomenon I'm quite interested in is the opposite one to the one you've described. Which, to be fair, in your book you say this is a real thing too, it's just not the focus of the book. Which right. is, instead of um, uh, being uncharitable towards our opponents, that we can assess them correctly, but you can also just keep going and get to the point where you're actually just not describing them accurately. And you have this weird phenomenon of you get a poll that says 60, 70, whatever percent of the Republican primary electorate believes the election was stolen, say. Or 40% believe violence would be an acceptable response to overturn that election, say. And what a lot of people say to that is, oh, but that's not what they really believe. That's just like in-group pressures, and actually if you got them alone they wouldn't say that. And I actually think there's a weird sort of refusal to just take people at their word, that yeah. people actually do believe these things. And I'm, I'm sort of both concerned by that tendency and also just quite interested. Like, why do we need to feel the need to pretend that everyone deep down is a reasonable liberal when clearly they're not? Um, and so I... And when... And you can often encounter the language and the rhetoric of what you owe the other side as almost a silencing tactic to right. like stop you accurately describing them that don't yep. you see by simply noticing what republicans are telling us that they believe we're somehow not respecting them as moral equals and my argument has always been there's actually a far greater degree of respect to say my default assumption not unshakable but default is that you're telling me the truth yep. and the, it's actually somewhat patronising to assume that you mean something different by than the stated literal meaning of your words, unless I have quite strong reason to. Right? Yeah, yeah. Now, that's why it sets off alarm bells. Um, why I ended up agreeing with it is I think there's just so obviously a great deal of truth to that 
on the left, I think we can be quite obsessed with purity um, in a way that's not useful for us um, in the advocacy of our ideas. It's not useful for us in terms of like our own intellectual development, and it's not useful for us, like you say, in terms of at least attempting to sustain the sort of environment in which change is possible. And I think there's reasons for it, and there are valid reasons for it, but I think a lot of people... I'll just take what I think of as the American, like, proto-socialist left, like, democratic socialists of America, or the people who were really passionate about Bernie Sanders, right? Like, sure. that, that wing of people. Um, who are... And again, I think there are reasons for this, but view their political engagement very much through the lens of what is like a pure expression of their ideology rather than what is most effective. In the, A lot of people said, I just felt dirty voting for Biden. And I just don't feel that way at all. But it's a sign that you're viewing that political act heavily filtered through what's pure it's literally i mean the, the idea of feeling dirty it's literally the language of purity right yep um and i think a lot of stuff like uh, medicare for all whether or not you agree with the policy it clearly serves as an in-group out-group marker yep. for people in that tribe in a way yep. that i'm not sure is because i mean my position on healthcare is the nhs i think it should just be like schools and the police right so so medicare for all is somewhat to the right of my views but if just as a matter of the world what's really on the table is single single payer i'm fine having that discussion on its own terms but i think we we because we've made it a marker of being in the in group or out group we can be much less effective in trying to instantiate the values that, that, that we believe in precisely because, and again, I think there are reasons for this that are valid, we've invested so much in delineating that, that boundary, you know? Anyway, I'll stop there. No, I think that that's right. You know, one other kind of example of this, um, you know, listeners might go check their um, social media feeds on the night of the Met Gala with the Tax the Rich dress. Yes. Now, you know, what happened in, in those discussions among among people who should be political allies? Yeah. Right. Among the people on the left, the progressives and the uh, the more left leaning uh, 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 side of the uh, of the left side of the political spectrum. Um, and I've actually get, you know, I've tried to gather some data on this because I was watching it in real time, being fascinated, but uh, also not surprised, um, you know. Those disagreements and in some cases sort of flame wars that were going on uh, on social media about um, AOC and her dress very quickly in most instances turned to disagreements about what it is to be a real progressive. Yes. Right. They weren't ultimately yeah, yeah, yeah. really all that interested in what do we mean by tax the rich? Does that mean closing loopholes? Does that mean adopting more progressive tax policy? Does that mean eliminating billionaires? What exactly are we talking? The actual like nuts, rubber hits the road. Like what would we do if we had the power to fix the tax code? That or, even, was... or even just a more limited question of was that an effective piece of advocacy? Yeah, good, did, good, good, did, right. did that help further our goals? Yeah, you know? Even that was now the prompting 
of, in most cases, a pretty nasty set of exchanges between people who I would have thought have a lot in common politically um, about, um, you know, what it takes to be an actual advocate or an actual ally or an actual progressive rather than a neoliberal, right? Rather than the, 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 the equivalent of the faker, you yeah. know? Um, and I, it struck me that um, that's really bad news hmm. for particularly for progressive coalitions. Hmm. Um, it's, now, again, it's not part of my account that these phenomena are um, equally present, you know, in all parts of the political spectrum. So mm. this is not a both sides thing. I'm willing to say, yeah, some of these dysfunctions are far more uh, prevalent among conservatives. And there's reason to think that some of them are. Um, however, mm. it still strikes me that some of these dysfunctions are far more debilitating mm. for progressive political ideals than they are damaging for conservative political projects, right? There's something about progressive political ideals that's got to be a little bit, you know, fast, cheap, and out of control. You know, we've mm. got to try different things. We've got to, you know, push off in various kinds of directions and be able to see our allies uh, as allies, people who are pushing in things, pushing in directions that we ourselves aren't, you know, fully in support of, but we can see, you know, a broader sense of progress sort of emerging out of various attempts to to move different kinds of things forward in different ways. Um, and so, you know, it it just, you know, the the, the idea that um, the reason that we might any the only reason that we might have to consider the question of what we owe to our political opponents has to be a question about them rather than a question about us, right, is part of what, you know, I'm trying to attack in the book. It's like, no, you need to treat your opponents a particular way so that you can maintain your alliances. And that's a moral thing. You need that in order to do the morally right thing. You need good critics around. Yeah, let me let me give another example, which um, comes from personal experience. Um of like the the version of this argument I don't like and the version that I like is um I had a debate with um uh, Thomas Prosser who's um he's someone who's very concerned about like I wouldn't call him a conservative per se but definitely very concerned about the excesses of the left and the supposed threats to free speech that social justice movements embody um and his argument, which I pushed back on, you know, I think nicely but reasonably strongly, I'll let listeners decide their own evaluation of that, is that I'm happy, by the way, with the language of social justice advocates, that's fine by me. I, I dislike the word woke, but, like, social justice seems fine to me. Um, sure. That them, we, I guess, I would sort of include myself in that tribe, describe anyone who disagrees with us as racist and sexist and so on but then he took that further to make a moral claim that we're doing by so doing we're doing something wrong and dangerous because by calling someone a racist 
you're not respecting them as a democratic equal, you're not engaging in debate with them or so on. And I pushed back on that because, like, sometimes people just are racists, like... And it, of course, depends what you mean by racism, if you're going on a narrow definition or a broad structural societal definition of racism. Because, like, by this big societal racism idea, like, we are in a racist country, you know, if that's the definition of racism that you're using. And even by a narrow definition, there are still a lot of racists out there. And, like, I don't think, like, just saying that I think someone is being racist is necessarily in absolute zero sum with saying that they are also a citizen who has political rights. There's a tension there, but there's not an outright contradiction. And so this idea that merely by saying we think our opponents are immoral in certain ways, or even anyone who disagrees with us is immoral in certain ways, I think is just sort of a category error. Um, Now, if you'd have come at it differently, I might have agreed a lot more, actually, which is, do social justice advocates, to, do, they, do they even really have an adequate understanding a lot of the time, not all of them, of course, but many, of why people disagree with them? Could their arguments be strengthened by engaging with what they believe to be and may in fact well be bad ideas, not just immoral, but like poorly expressed, you know? But- is there more? De- I I genuinely do think that the social justice movement, which again I would count myself a part of, has in many ways not found the best expression of its ideas because it is quite insular. And it's not exactly that they're doing anything wrong by thinking that people are racist. They may well be racist. It's the idea that like you know, thoughtful critiques, and this is part of the problem because there's not a lot of thoughtful critiques of social justice and there's a lot of just like... Unthoughtful ones, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, that, that, that even if we start by disagreeing with them and end by disagreeing with them, there's just absolutely nothing to be learned from like Right. What can yeah anyway go ahead but like that so, that's yeah, another so, example. You know I, I I talk about this in the book. Um, so two things come to mind. One is that I think that there's a real tendency that's ex- that you know we can explain, but I think is a kind of um, uh, a kind of error when we think of you know the other side when we think of the political opponent or even the political enemy, we are we tend to start thinking about what. Talese saying I got to go and have coffee with the fascists and the authoritarians because that's the, you know, we sort of think of our political opponents strictly in terms of the most extreme beyond the pale, right, political opponent. And I think that's a mistake. We say, well, I don't know anything to, you know, the MAGA uh, uh, folks. They're just people who have a certain legal status in my democracy, but really aren't entitled to any of the power that they have because they're divested. And then it becomes a kind of, you know, um, slippery slope argument. Well, because I don't know anything to the MAGA people, the people who are just of poor political judgment who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know anything to them either because they're complicit. And then eventually you don't know anything as far as democratic relations go with anybody who's not just like you. That's a profoundly anti-democratic position to be drawn to. Mm -hmm. So the argument of sustaining democracy says... Don't start with the beyond the whoever you think is beyond the pale of proper democratic, you know, guardrails. 
leave them to the side. That's a different kind of problem. You're still going to have within any acceptably broad range of democratic opinion, there are still going to be people who hold opinions within that range that you think are, you know, unfounded, inscrutable, inconsistent with justice, bad, and people ought to know better, right? There's still going to be the guy who's really wrong, severely misguided about politics, who's just not beyond the pale. That's just, again, part of the project of democratic politics is you got to recognize that. So that's one thing. Um, and I think that we, we lose sight of that. We lose sight of that. We come to see you know, disagreements about serious political things as always disagreements between who's within the bounds of, of acceptable democratic opinion and the whoever the opponent is has to be outside of that bound of acceptable democratic opinion. And I think that's an error. But, you know, part of what um, uh, comes up in the, the book as a speculation, um, uh, uh, as a conjecture, um, is that too many uh, or too much of our attempts empirically and otherwise to mitigate and address polarization is too fixated, I think, on um, the need, sometimes thought of as Millian, but I don't think this is a right reading of Mill, the need to enter into democratic spaces and conversations and engagements always with the idea that you need to hear the other side out because, hey, they could be right, hmm. or hey, they could have a point, or hey, you don't want your view to become dead dogma, or hey, you know, they might say something that will cause you to change your mind. Now, all of that stuff sounds good to me and all the rest. However, I say, well, wait a minute, there is a different kind of approach to democratic engagement that we don't want to overlook, hmm. which is part of what you were getting out in your comments a moment ago, which is that Sometimes listening to the critic is important, not because, hey, I could be wrong and they might be right, but because you can learn from them the ways in which the other side has misunderstood your view, the way that they tend to hear what you say uh, um, uh, in support of your view. You can learn more or less effective and precise ways of articulating your position Hmm. by way of an engagement with the other side. So part of the conjecture I make in the book is that if we did a little bit more of ex experimental work with citizen juries and assemblies and deliberative hmm. polling, where the interaction is organized not around the, let's hear the pro and con about gun control, and you know everyone's gonna be informed about the pro and con, and then let's see if the people who are on the other opposite sides of the gun control issue actually get along better. There's some promising results that show, yeah, this is a good way to help people get along better. But I wanna say, well, maybe we ought to design some interventions where it's not a pro and con uh, uh, engagement. The engagement rather is, I'm for much more strict gun control measures. Why, why don't, why aren't you convinced by my arguments? Hmm. Where do you think the vulnerability is in my case? What's the best counterexample you've got? Where are the objections that you want to raise? We're not here now. I'm not here to listen to your less gun, you know, more guns on the street argument. I'm not here to listen to that. I want to find out where you think I've gone wrong hmm. or where I can do better. 
that doesn't require me to take a skeptical or fallibilist attitude towards my own convictions, because after all, I could just say, well, I know why the other side isn't convinced. They systematically misunderstand my view. Here's a way to bulletproof my expression of the view so that it counteracts the tendency to be for it to be misunderstood in those ways. I think that's a real important part of democratic reflection and thinking, is just saying, thinking a little bit about why why is the other side unconvinced by my arguments? What can I learn about that from them by hearing them talk? Hmm. We, I think, give too short. We, we don't, we don't attend to that as much. Although it's, it's bread and butter in philosophy classes. <laughs> well, you, I think you learn by being ideologically bilingual because I think political ideologies aren't just you know, sets of propositions or descriptive claims. They're languages through which we interpret and describe and interact yeah. with the world. And you can say the same thing in different languages. Yeah. So, like, conservatives, when they're arguing to teach creationism in schools, will not use the language of biblical truth, which presumably is what's bedrock for them. But they'll instead say stuff like, we think children should be taught the debate, and they should be able yep. to make their own minds up. In other words, they've sort of translated what they're saying into liberal. You know what I mean? They're That's speaking right. in liberal. And when I was um, working on a gay marriage campaign, I would often find a very useful way of proceeding was to translate what I'm saying into libertarian. So instead of talking about social justice or something, I'm going to say, well, look, we live in a regime of contracts, um, individuals are free to form particular contractual relations with one another, and if people want to form a contractual relation with respect to any number of things, like raising children or finances or whatever, and it doesn't harm anyone else, that's their right within a regime of contracts, and what they call it is up to them, and it's not... And, and I, that did actually get some traction, or at least a more receptive one but i think the other the, the the side is there's an efficacy side to it but there's also a side that i think you think better about like you know i've no doubt in my mind that if i spoke five different real world languages i would become a better writer even if i was only ever writing in english right like that yeah. just seems obvious to me um i think like you and there's something just great about being really comfortable and flexible with your own values that you can translate them that kind of like there's nothing else quite like it and you kind of have to experience it to get it of why that's something you might want and i think that is you said it's a misreading of of, of mill i think so you you know i'm a mill fanboy right um yeah Mill, well, he's making both arguments, yeah, and yeah, the genius right. of Mill is he does both at the same time, in a way, because they're not the same argument at all. Yeah. He does both at the same time, in a way that he doesn't ever really have to compromise one for the other. It's one of the reasons, complete tangent, I think there's something to what a lot of modern scholars are saying, which is really Harriet Taylor's the primary author of On Liberty. Because yeah. there's times in On Liberty where he just doesn't sound like particularly the younger Mill. Right. And what you're almost seeing there, because the Liberty Principle was in Harriet Taylor's notes 20 years before that book right. was published. I think what you're almost seeing 
is an after-the-fact cleaning up of an on ongoing dialogue between two people. That's really speculative on my part and nothing to do with anything we've talked about. But it makes good sense of the dedication. Yeah. Right, yeah. of the dedication to Harriet. Yeah, I think what, what he's saying in that dedication translated from the sort of Victorian English is, look, she's the main author, but given the reality of the patriarchal world we live in, it's just more sensible that we publish it under my name. That, that's yeah. basically how I translate that dedication. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that view um, <laughs> of Mill. <laughs> but, but I think that that is the value of Mill, and that's the value of a mature liberalism, is that you do have the sort of consequentialist side about, like, we, we want to discover truth, and you're not really going to get at what's true if you're being locked in your corners and so on. Um, I think that's a valid argument as it goes. Right? Because there's three stages in Mill. He's saying, when would you want to like be in discourse with someone when they're right, when they're wrong, and when they're a bit of both? Right? Like yeah. that's the structure of the argument. Um I think I think people, the sort of free speech bro crowd, can fetishize that side of Mill and fetishize um um like the idea of like getting at truth to the exclusion of the other. And it kind of, like, all we're ever trying to do when we have discourse is get at truth. And if your yeah. actions aren't geared towards that goal, you're not, you're doing the discourse wrong, and it means you don't agree with free speech. And, like, yeah. that's what happens when that side falls out. I mean, you, right. you, you could go the other way and, like, you know, just have the other side about, like, self-development, but that's not really the risk that I see people having. The risk is yeah. to only have the other side anyway. I, I agree with all that. That all sounds right to me. <laughs> okay, that's that's my mill. You know, let me. Can I yeah. just add one other please, one other thing? Because I know that we're 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 coming to the end. Uh, I want to supplement what you were just saying, and even borrow some of the language you just used about speaking multiple uh, multiple ideological languages, mm. um, uh, as a crucial sort of um, uh, capacity and uh, ability for democratic citizens. Because um, I agree with that. The book closes with an argument that um, uh, says something uh, along those same lines, but with a little uh, added uh, element to it. Because, um, you know, I think that the, the dysfunction of belief polarization has reached a certain um, intensity, at least in the United States, that um, part of what I wind up recommending is, is I'd say, look, better engagements with the other side, you know, more reasonable interactions with critics. This is all something to be pursued. But, you know, we're going to have a hard time identifying reasonable critics because we're already convinced that there aren't any reason or that they're so few and far between. You know, most critics or most people on the other side are already too far gone to serve uh, the kind of purpose that we need for them. Um, so I make the case for saying that, you know, Sometimes what we need as democratic citizens is solitude, hmm. is occasion to take a step back, not from politics, hmm. but from the political cleavages of the moment, hmm. from the political fray of the moment, to take a step back and to think political thoughts and to be exposed to political ideas and perspectives that aren't easily translatable by us 
into the idiom of contemporary democratic conflicts, mm -hmm. right? We need maybe to, you know, find space to go back and read Thucydides, you know, <laughs> or read Aristotle when he's going through his different definitions of democracy. Um, so, you know, there's something important for the democratic citizen who's politically engaged right here and right now to have moments where the the spectrum of political thinking is expanded mm. beyond what's immediately speaking to the political struggles of the day so that we can return to those struggles with um, with a larger toolkit mm. than was supplied to us as people who are in the fray. So, you know, the book ends with this argument that we need we need moments of political solitude, not just withdrawal, but moments of political solitude to reacquaint ourselves with the idea that democratic politics isn't all about November 2020, mm. <laughs> 2021 United States, but that the project of democracy is more varied and more extended temporally and ge geographically than our politics invites us to think. And I think that that's a real important, you know, democracy needs us to be active. Yes. It also needs us to be reflective. Mm. The argument of the book is that some ineliminable, essential modes of democratic activity counteract our reflective capacities. And I want to say, well, in order to shore up and to regain some of those capacities, we need to expand our sense of what our civic activities can look like. It's like sometimes it's a civic act. It's a it's an act of citizenship to sit in a room alone and read something about democracy in India, you know, for example, or to sit in a room and go read something about, you know, um, political ideas that are just not that are alien to us because their alienness is significant and salient for the politics of the day. How does that strike you? You know what a perfect example of this is? Is oh, um, You remember on Philosophy Twitter a while back, someone had the worst take of the day. There's always one. There's someone who always has the worst take of the day, and everyone goes nuts with it. Right. Where, I forget who it was or even what they said, but it was something to the effect of Kant started critical race theory because he had a I book called this, yeah. The Critique of Pure Reason. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which, okay, yeah, that is beautiful. That is A plus Twitter. Right there, right? Um, but it actually speaks to what you're saying of, like, what is that book there for? Not, like, what did Kant think he was doing with it? God knows. Like, but, like, what's, what's the utility of that book as a resource to us? Um, because, like, the way that was being approached was, like, people were going in and sort of saying, like, and you see this a lot, like, they try to sort of draw back these genealogies of, like, the so-called totalitarian left. It was actually this thinker, that, this thinker, and it's like, they become subsumed into our partisan debate. Whereas actually, like, the value of a lot of the stuff in the history of political thought is that it's completely fricking alien. And I think we can trip over ourselves in just appreciating, like, just how alien it is um, a completely lateral brain example, 
but like I've but recently done a bunch of the courses on like New Testament history and criticism. God knows why. And one of the things that that's like really struck me and always does with the ancient world is how different these people were to us. You can draw right. commonalities, but like people want to go to the Bible and says, oh, when Paul here is talking about the role of men and women, and there's people who want to take that and say this means we need to have a traditionalist man as head of the household view and then there's other people who and i'm not like saying you can't do this read but say oh well actually if you read it in this way it's like a liberal feminist thing the historical right. paul was not a liberal feminist but he was also not pra- preaching a version of gender and gender identity that would at all be recognizable to a modern conservative and the debates they're engaged in with respect to the family the role of women uh gender sexuality are I mean, the, Paul's, like, in a world where the debate was around, like, sexual aestheticism and stuff like that. It's just yeah, a completely right. different set sure. of things. And, like, if you're... Maybe a religious one was the wrong example, because people use religious texts in different ways. But if you're looking at that work as to, like, find ammunition for, like, a partisan worldview, that's that's not what... that That's not what that book can do for you. It's a source of imagination. You know. Exactly. That's exactly. So that, I'm glad because that's exactly the thing. Like cultivating the political imagination mm. is a civic responsibility. I I argue in the yeah. book, yeah. and you can't cultivate it if your engagements with all political material is motivated by the desire to translate it into the idiom and divides that are happening mm. right here and right now. That's a way to quash the imaginative capacities that can be opened right by engaging with political ideas they these ideas in order to do their democratic work need to be received by us as alien right as something that doesn't quite fit into you know the square the the, the squares and the circles that we've got you know pegs for already um so there's a there's an the end of the book is really like part of the polarization management task has to do with how you engage with others, has to do with how you maintain good relations with your friends, your political friends. But it also has to do with attempts to expand your sense of what permissible ideological variation is among allies. And that takes the cultivation of civic imagination, of thinking beyond, you know, thinking political thoughts in ways that transcend the really tight confined divides hmm. that we now find structure all the political urgency around us. Not because things aren't urgent, but because we can't allow our political thinking to doom us to a political future that looks like the present. Hmm. And I suspect that that's what we're, this is how we're setting, if everything now is digested as ammunition, as you put it, Hmm. for my conservative or my liberal or my progressive or my traditionalist political stance, given the divides today, everything is sort of translated into the divides today. We sort of consign ourselves to a political future where all the categories stay in place. And that just strikes me as giving up on democracy, where part of the, I'm a Deweyan in this regard, 
you know, there's something experimental about democracy. You know, this, this is in Mill too, but something experimental where the categories, the formations, the problems, the issues, the strategies change, the norms develop in ways that, you know, we have to, that, that we can't always predict and that have to do with new data and new experiences. And so, you know, it's like, you got to cultivate the imagination in a way that doesn't sort of paint us into a corner so that we're, Unwittingly, perhaps we've we've left ourselves unable to envision a political future in which it's not you know Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, <laughs> you know? and nobody wants that political future, right? Hmm. But that's what we're consigning ourselves to, I think. Yeah, does that I, make sense? No, no, it does, and I think there's there's an urge. So there's obviously the Kant one is a silly case, but there's serious people who fall prey to the same thing. Yeah. Because we, we like to draw genealogies, don't we? We like to say this is where the view comes from and that th this is where it goes back. And that's fine in a sense as like the work of an intellectual historian. But what we can sometimes do is take something that's important to us now and just draw a bright clear line backwards and flatten everything else. And now the this was ages ago I've read it, so I'm, I'm, I might misremember or misrepresent. Um, but Nagel, I think, the one who wrote What's It Like to Be a Bat. Tom Nagel, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He had a paper about, like, the history of liberalism um, from, like, lock to rules or something, right? Um, and he sort of said at the beginning of it, liberalism is about two things. And... Sorry, this was like 10 years ago I read this. Liberalism <laughs> is about, like, X claim about rights and Y claim about whatever. And he said you can trace this, you know, this is this is the central things which it's revolved around all the way back. And I just, even as an undergrad, I was like, no. No. Like, you can find language that will speak to that in Locke, but that is not Locke's central concern. Locke, yeah. Locke you know... Like that's that's not and what... what would it be what would it be like for that kind of claim to be true? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's almost like why would you want to tell a story like that? That they're just there's a there is two two claims running through, you know, a couple of centuries worth of really serious political reflection mm -hmm. that's going on under radically diverse political mm -hmm. conditions. What would it be like to want that story to pan out? Yeah. It's, it's just it's just I don't live in that kind of world, I guess. I you know, that's not my that's not my intellectual atmosphere. <laughs> I, I I feel like I made this point somewhere else, but one of the reasons I am a pluralist liberal isn't anything big and abstract. It is it, it, it's just a much more obviously true description of the world. Like like the idea that there there are these sort of fixed constants, and this can be expressed in a brutish form, like Kant invented critical race theory. Right. It can be expressed in a sort of refined form that there were like these laws of economics governing society, or that like there's these sort of fundamental moral attitudes that are sort of, or you know, an opposition between two sets of moral attitude, which, like I said, we can just trace this clear line right. through all of history to, like, say, well, this is just what liberalism is about. These are, I mean, whatever else they are, they are not descriptively true statements about the world. And quite, you know, you know so, like, anything that's, any ideology that's premised on some 
sort of view that the, these are descriptively true statements in the world. Anything that stands on top of that foundation is also shaky. Like, like in many ways, my liberalism is quite mundane, you know? It's just like, people have thought radically different things, and people in different ages have been... I mean, look, look again, a Mill fanboy, but he keeps saying this to us, right? People think differently, and they think differently throughout different societies, and societies change a lot. Right? It's just a very mundane observation in many ways. Um, yeah. And that's not the result of anybody's falling down or falling short of some ideal of rationality. Hmm. It's a truth about us as yeah. cognitive creatures, that there's cognitive diversity, diversity in conclusions, diversity in circumstances that just make the thing that you've just described the case. Yeah. Seems to me to, yeah, we're on the same page. We're, we're agreeing about a lot today. <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. on the same page about, uh, about that, uh, about that too. That just seems to me to be right. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's, it's like one of those things that like, there's actually not that much more to say about it. I agree. <laughs> um, but okay. Should we, should we pause it there? You want to tell, that'd be great. um, you want to tell listeners, um, remind them of the book, anywhere else you'd like to direct them, Twitter, website, anything like that? Uh, I can do that if you like. Is that, does that sound all right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to plug your book a bit. Yeah, sure. So uh, the book is called Sustaining Democracy, What We Owe to the Other Side. It's published by Oxford University Press. 2021 came out about a month and a half ago. And uh, can be purchased through Oxford or wherever you buy books. Um, and I could be followed uh, on Twitter uh, at Robert Talese, R-O-B-E-R-T-T-A-L-I-S-S-E. -S -S -E. One word. Cool. All right. Thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. That was, that was a lot of fun.